When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A one, two, three, four. Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Welcome to Insights, everyone, where our guest this hour is award-winning music journalist Marissa R. Moss. Marissa joins Amy Wright in conversation today to discuss her brand new book, Her Country, How the Women of Country Music Became the Success They Were Never Supposed to Be, a book in which she shares the full inside story of women like Maren Morris, Mickey Guyton, and Casey Musgraves, and how they fought their way to the top of the male-dominated country music industry. Moss has written about the topic of gender inequality on the country airwaves for outlets like Rolling Stone, NPR, Billboard, Entertainment Weekly, and many more, and we're thrilled to have her on the show today. From Diddy TV... This is Insights. Marissa. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Can you hear me You're, okay? I can. Is that, cool. your, is that your apartment or house? Uh, this is my office in my house. It's your office in your house. It's very cool. Mm-hmm. I like the posters in the back. <laughs> Thanks. And my cat, who oh. might start to be annoying. Like, I, yeah. I What's know. your cat's name? Um, that's Otis back there. Hi, Otis. <laughs> well, Otis wants to be interviewed as well, I can tell. He always does. Yeah. He <laughs> won't give up. <laughs> well, I have to say, you have done so many extraordinary things to be as young as you are. I mean, pretty um, amazing. I'm not that young. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to talk about her country, but I thought it might be fun to go back a little ways and uh, talk about how you got here because there seems to be kind of a path to, to really creating this book and the story behind it and um, maybe what you learned along the way that, that led you to want to get this story out there. Um, but you're a journalist, obviously. Um, where, did, where did you grow up? Um, I grew up mostly in New York City. Um, I lived in Boston for a bit of my childhood, but um, I was born in the New York area and went to college in New York City after high school in New York City. Um, I moved to Nashville like a little over a decade ago. So when you were young, were you into music? I was. I was actually the rare, I don't know if there's a lot of us out there. I think most kids want to be musicians if they're super into music like I was, but I wanted to be a music writer and write books. <laughs> um, I guess maybe because I didn't have any musical talent. So that could have helped. Um, all I could ever learn was, you know, three Indigo Girls and Bob Dylan songs on the guitar. <laughs> um, so performing wasn't for me. Um but yeah, I was a huge, you know, music was most of my life, you know, other than friends and whatever other normal teenage stuff. Um, it was music for me when I was a kid. 
So what were you into? What were you listening to? Mm. Well, at first it wasn't country music. You know, I didn't, living in New York City and Boston for a bit, it, you know, country music wasn't the music that most of my friends listened to. Um, so, you know, I grew up in the 90s, so Liz Fair, uh, Nirvana, Crow, Nirvana <laughs> uh, Tribe Called Quest, um, Beastie Boys, <laughs> um, all those, all those things um, that a 90s kid does, L7. Um, but I also got really into The Grateful Dead. And that was in, that was kind of where I went down the world to country music when I started to get super into the Grateful Dead and super into Bob Dylan um, I wanted to know you know who influenced them and all the characters kind of that were in their circle uh, so that's how I first got down a country wormhole I think was through the dead and Dylan just out of curiosity did you ever go to the Lilith Fair when that was no. uh, touring I honestly, like, out, you know, and I would say it's one of my biggest regrets outside of like major, you know, more significant life things, but definitely wish I would have gone to Lilith there, but I didn't for whatever reason. Um, but I wish I had. This I, I actually did get to go in DC and uh, I was there with some friends. And of course, one of them was a guy friend of our, you know, sort of our group. And he went along not really knowing how oriented it was to, you know, female artists. And we got there and he come, he went to use the restroom and comes back and he goes, this is really strange. He goes, there was one toilet for men and like 30 for women. <laughs> and I That's said, <laughs> just the That's best. Perfect. It is perfect. It's perfect. So, um, You've written for Rolling Stone, American Songwriter, Billboard, a lot of other entertainment and music publications. Um, so how did you kind of um, get into the country music world specifically? You said you moved to Nashville, but how did that sort of come about? Um, yeah, I mean, I had, before I moved to Nashville, I think it was 2011 or 2012. I'm terrible with dates and timelines. I screw it up all the time. Um, but... Before I moved to Nashville, I'd already been in, you know, listening to country music and been really excited by, you know, sort of left of center country artists um, like Justin Towns Earl or country adjacent artists like Justin Towns Earl and Robert Ellis and Nikki Lane had just put out a record. Um, and I was really excited about the music that was being made in Nashville and sort of country adjacent spaces. Uh, you know, got obsessed with heartworn highways, all that stuff. Um, so when I came to Nashville, I, I guess I didn't know if immediately I felt like I would have a place in country music reporting. So I think I started out doing more, I guess, rock reporting here. I don't know. I don't know about genres. They're all weird to me, but, um, and it just sort of naturally, I guess it just sort of naturally gravitated there. Um, but really when Rolling Stone Country opened up here, that was really the first um, first major country outlet that was willing to kind of give me a chance 
and uh, didn't seem to care that I hadn't been in Nashville for like 20 years, you know, proving myself as a country music writer. I just um, could write and like music. And um, that was definitely an, an important moment for me that when they opened up here, because I grew up as a kid just worshiping Rolling Stone, just like flat out worship, like worship level. <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, I plastered my walls with Rolling Stone, not only covers, but bylines so I could learn them. And um, as I got older, I carried around to like five different houses, like all of these back issues of Rolling Stone that I had collected for years. And they're truly still sitting up in my attic right now. <laughs> despite the fact that you can get everything on the internet. Um, so that was, that was huge for me to like see the kind of style of musical reporting that I had loved and, and kind of learned how to be a music journalist on um, coming into the country space. And that felt like, like, I remember when they announced it, I was like, this is, I have to do this or like, I'll die. You know, <laughs> like this is perfect for me. Um, not everything always works out, but luckily that did work out. So had you already been writing music articles, say in college, or were you freelancing? How did you land the job with uh, Rolling Stone Country? And was that freelance too? or was That, that was freelance, a... yeah. I've actually mm -hmm. never had a staff writing position. Um, but yeah, I had a column in college at NYU. Um, I believe it was called A Rolling Stone Gathers No Moss. <laughs> I don't think I made up that title, <laughs> um, but it was an opinion column in the um, the Washington Square News. I guess it's now called the NYU News. And then for a while out of college, I didn't work in journalism because it was difficult to find a job and to pay my rent in New York City um, with an editorial assistant level position. Um, so I did a bunch of different things in the communication space and got into political communications work. Um, moved out to LA, was doing that uh, for progressive causes. And I was doing music writing. You know, I would finish my day job and then I would, you know, have dinner sort of regroup and then I would go out to show and write about music for Spin and Huffington Post. And at the time I was doing it for free, which I wouldn't recommend anyone did right now, you know, know your worth from the beginning, but it helped me get um, the clips that I needed. So by the time I arrived in Nashville, I um, I had a website and clips and was able to show editors that, you know, I could write. That had to be an exciting moment to get that, for, land that first deal with Rolling Stone Country. And yeah, it was, um, it was exciting and um, I still write for them as a freelancer and um, love my editors there and uh, grateful for it. A lot of that reporting um, really informed the book. So, When you wrote a landmark article prior to publishing her country um, entitled Country Radio's Dark Secret History of Sexual Harassment and Misconduct, and that, conduct, and that was for Rolling Stone Country, and how did that story come about? How did you kind of move from writing about artists to something that was uh, a more in-depth um, coverage of a topic like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I was always, as much as I was interested in doing feature reporting, I was really interested in um, 
you know, in, in news reporting and investigative journalism, um, I studied, you know, investigative reporting and was really, really interested in the power that that could hold as much as I was as, as feature writing and profiling. And uh, I think by working in politics for a while too, kind of really understood the power that stories like that can have to, um, you know, influence policy changes. And, um, and I have been doing some of that work, but that one came about, I remember when Taylor Swift um, came public with the lawsuit that you know, she was involved in with a, when she alleged that a DJ had groped her backstage at a, sh at a show. Um, a suit which she eventually won. Um, I was like, if Taylor Swift, if this is happening to Taylor Swift, then it has to be happening to other women. Because if it's happening to the most famous woman in country music around these radio DJs, then they're just have, I just feel like there's probably more. Um, and so then I set out to report it because sometimes you can have a hunch and you're wrong. You have to find out. Um, and it turned out that I was right. And that was one of the areas that I wish I wasn't right. You know, mm -hmm. I wish it wasn't so easy to find 30 women to talk to <laughs> for a story like that. Um, but unfortunately it was. And um, I'm did proud you of find, that piece. Did, did, did you find out that it was really intrinsic in the business? Yeah, I did. Um, and the way that Nashville works is like something becomes so commonplace and um, just part of the culture here that people almost become blind to it. And, you know, they just either live with it or they ignore it or they think it's the way it has to be. Um, and obviously it doesn't have to be that way. But when that piece ran, some people were even like, oh, why would you ever write this? Like, it's so obvious we all know this is happening. I was like, well, that's that's a crazy thing to say, <laughs> you know. So you're comfortable with this happening. Everybody knows it, but maybe you just don't want it being spoken about in a public forum or, you know, what's truly bothering you about the fact that this is out there? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because it almost sounds like uh, women anticipated this and thought it was part of what they had, the dues they had to pay to get to the top or make it along the way. And so maybe outing it wasn't comfortable for them because they just felt it was so much a part of their career. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's so hard to get played on country radio if you're a woman to begin with, um, that you're either afraid of speaking out about something that happens, you know, um, or you're, you don't want to rock the boat. You just feel like you have to go above and beyond to even have your, music having, you know, have a shot at having your music played. Um, so there's so many reasons that people just kind of, you know, deal with it and kind of, you know, um, you know, hide their feelings and hide any desire to speak openly about it, um, which is a, bit, a very sad situation that we're in. And I do think there's a link to all of this happening and, and women not being played on country radio because it shows you so much about what we expect from them to succeed to, or what you experience as a female artist in Nashville um, and why you may or may not even end up leaving and giving up country music. 
Um, so I felt like it was an important story to write for a lot of different reasons. So as a journalist in country music, did you ever experience in any of that sort of harassment yourself or did you ever feel uncomfortable or were you sort of removed from that scene? I mean, sure. <laughs> um, I mean, I experienced sexual harassment in, you know, my first job out of college. Um, and I had a boss that, I mean, this wasn't even in journalism, but I had a boss that slapped me on the ass at a Christmas party and squeezed. And there's a picture of it pretty similar to Taylor Swift. And when I brought it up with him, he got super defensive and I ended up quitting on the spot. And uh, that was after talking to, and I think this is something that a lot of women go through is I spoken to a lawyer before that. And mm. I said, you know, I was essentially sexually assaulted by my boss. Mm. Should I do anything about this? And he and some other people actually encouraged me not to. Like, mm -hmm. you're just starting out in your career. You don't want to talk about this. Like, you don't want to rock the boat in this way. Um, and in some ways, I really regret taking that advice. But I mean, as a woman in a mostly male dominated field, I definitely have had to deal with a lot of uh, misogynistic and sexist comments and attitudes and being mistaken for the girlfriend when I'm trying to get into a backstage area for an interview. That's happened less as I've gotten older and probably give off like a mom vibe. Um, <laughs> I don't know, but. I don't even know um, what comes after mom vibe because that's where I am, so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're you're absolutely right though. mom look on my face at all times. <laughs> So um, was it that article that actually kind of led you to write her country? Did the research that you did ultimately lead to uh, the book? It's definitely part of it. And I think after that article, I definitely got more interested in exploring different sides of this story um, and just elevating the stories of women in country music in a more um, just kind of pure focus on the music kind of way and making sure that there was a woman in a woman journalist in country music who was really working hard to push these stories out there. Um, so it definitely built that foundation where it kind of became my beat, I guess, hearing a lot of this kind of reporting and um, sort of naturally led to the book, I think. The book covers the last 20 years of women in country music and the real challenges discrimination they face, and it really takes you through the eyes of, um, tells a story through the eyes of female country artists like Maren Morris, Mickey Guyton, and Casey Musgraves. One of the things I found really interesting was that 20 years ago, Shania Twain, I hadn't even thought about this myself, but Shania Twain, Faith Hill, the Chicks were dominating country radio. Even before these women, there were history of successful women in country like Dolly Parton, Patsy Cline, Wanda Jackson, Loretta Lynn, Patty Griffin, Tanya Tucker, Winona Judd, and, and it goes on and on and on. What happened that caused sort of the path for women to move backward and not forward? That's a big question um, and one that I really wanted to tackle in the book because we're always kind of trying to figure out what happened. And there are a lot of different answers and some answers that you can't even really give. Um, but 
I think that's part of the reason why I chose the time frame that I did too. But um, there are a lot of things that happen. Consolidation uh, in the late 90s, starting with the Telecommunications Act of 1996, really just eliminated the amount of local programmers, really consolidated radio stations in the hands of, you know, you have someone in New York programming an office in, you know, rural Arkansas. Um, and so how do they know what's going on? They're going to go with what's easiest and what's cheapest. Automation software that programs discrimination essentially into um, playlists. So you can program your software, your programming software for radio to only play women X number of times per hour. And 9-11, sort of the increase of patriotic mode in country music, um, really changed the climate. And then what happened with the chicks, obviously, there's, it's not one thing. A lot of people talk about it and say it's, it's one thing. And it's not one thing. It's a lot of things, you know, um, that all built up to create this problem, the situation that we're in, that now no one can find a way to get out of. Um, and no one is, seems like willing enough to get out of either. That's kind of the, I would say, biggest problem for me is, you know, we know that we now know the problem is here. We all talk about the problem. What are we willing to do to fix it, if anything? And it doesn't seem like much. Is the perception with, uh, with corporate radio that male artists sell more ads? Is it, is it economic or money driven? Did you discover any of that in your research? Yeah, male artists um, sell more booze at mm-hmm. shows. <laughs> That's the belief. Mm-hmm. None of these beliefs are really founded in any truth or fact, unless it's truth that we've created. You know, so the the common saying is that people don't want to listen to women or women don't want to listen to women. And we've created that because we never play women. So people aren't familiar with hearing women. And the radio is a, you know, it's a format dependent on familiarity. You want to turn on something in your car while you're, you know, listening on your headphones while you're vacuuming or something. And you want to hear something that's familiar. You can sing along and kind of go about your day. And if you hear something new, you're going to turn the dial. So we've played women's voices so infrequently that people even you know, when it comes to testing, I already think that they don't like to hear women. It's not some sort of like thing that's been built into people from birth, you know, this like um, predisposition against wanting to hear women's voices or something. That's not true at all. But we've created that truth. So I noticed I saw that currently country radio only plays female artists around 10% of the time. I mean, what is their justification for that? That just seems crazy to me. I'm in the music business, and I have so many uh, female artists that I'm huge fans of, and I just don't understand why they wouldn't play female artists at least 40% of the time, maybe 50. (laughs) I don't know. But uh, what what are they saying is the um, justification for that kind of discrepancy? discrepancy? Well, a a lot of people will justify it by saying, well, women aren't making hits, Hmm. you know, or there's women that just, you know, they're not enough women that want to be in country music or 
I mean, you hear this a lot too with specifically, I think black women in country music, people will say, oh, you know, but black women aren't interested in country music or aren't making country music. All of that is a load of bull. It's not true. Um, so you can eliminate that, you know, as the first on the list. Country radio gets so stuck. I mean, for one, it's programmed by 90% white men. So <laughs> there you go for that. Um, but two, they get, you naturally get so stuck in what works. You know, it's a, tries to be like we're this down home family business kind of looking out for every, you know, each other. But it's as much of a business as any other part of the music business. And it's going to go, um, it's going to go with what's, working and what sells and you know I think other facets of the music industry have been able to take a little bit of a look at those inequities and say that even if something is working it doesn't make it right but country music is not able to do that and it would be a much better investment in the future if you could actually, you know, go through whatever that one awkward week where you let more women on the airwaves or whatever, then you would build more people that you could play on the radio and you would have more people making more money for country music and for Nashville. We would have more people that could headline festivals. So I don't know why you wouldn't want to do those things, you know, financially, even if not morally, it's a good investment for Nashville to create more viable stars. Um, especially since they speak to half of the entire human population. Um, but doesn't really seem to be shifting that way as far as country radio is concerned. But women are finding other ways to succeed, um, which is exciting. So is it the same for other genres of music or is it really uh, more of a country music uh, problem? I think there's no other genre where radio is still so important. Mm. And that's the thing about country is that other genres, you know, in pop and rock and, um, and rap, you have other ways to engage people with music. That's not just so dependent on radio. You know, those other genres really make use of Spotify and streaming and YouTube and, you know, many other ways to reach fans. They're not really reliant as much on radio play as um, country artists are. So it's just the fact that country radio is still such a big force in a country artist's career that makes it so, you know, makes it so important to still sort of kind of hold its feet to the fire. I wonder if it's somewhat topical in the sense that women may be covered different topics in their music and if the country radio uh, business is dominated by white men, then maybe they're not relating even to the topics that are being covered in the music by women. I, I don't know, but that thought occurred to me as well. Yeah, I saw someone writing about Marin and Morris's album, Humble Quest, and she does well on radio. She's one of the very few. Um, a testament to her talent, I think, although talent isn't even always enough. But someone was talking about how, like, they couldn't, they didn't like the themes that she had written about on the album or something. And that, like, um, 
I can't remember what it was, but it was a man writing about not relating to what she was singing about. Um, and that's, you know, I don't relate to like half of what the men are singing about on country radio. I never needed to fully relate to what I was hearing in general as a music fan. Um, it's not supposed to be an essential part, you know. Bob Dylan never lived on Maggie's farm, you know, <laughs> like it's not a <laughs> it's not really an important part of writing, even. Mm -hmm. It can be. Um, so none of that really holds up as a good excuse. Um but I definitely think that, you know, the stifling of women's voices has to do with a little bit of a fear of what if women are able to um, have a lot more power if they do, not than they do, not just in country music, but maybe even in the home. Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting to think about. Yeah, you know, one of the th thoughts I had was when a male artist comes to Nashville, it seems like then there is really more of a built-in support system versus when women or minorities come to pursue their dreams of a career in music. If radio is so important to their popularity in the music business, in the country music business, then they're at an inherent disadvantage immediately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... There are male artists that have had number ones on country radio on their first single or first or second single. that I don't think anyone has heard of, like, <laughs> you know, I mean, sure, they have some fans, but that's only because they heard them on the radio. And there is just if you look at the promotional budgets at a label for a new male artist versus a new female artist so much more effort and promotional dollars are going into a male artist because they know that it's probably going to succeed. You know, not everything will, but has a much better chance of succeeding than a woman. And that same label might like talk about how they're frustrated that women aren't getting country airplay or, you know, sit on panels and talk about it or do whatever and seem to care deeply about this, but then still just put most promotional dollars behind the men. So there's, yeah, there's a much um, more clearly defined path for men that come to Nashville. And uh, it's almost like, you know, if you're signed to a label and you're a man and you're doing pretty straight ahead country songs, you're, you know, your path is there. It's not that crazy. Um, but for women, it's, basically doesn't exist. Well, for any artist, you have to have distribution. And that includes radio, that includes um, getting your music out there in general. But if you don't have that distribution, then you're at an inherent disadvantage. Um, but what I really like about the book is that it's also about the women's success they've had in spite of these challenges. Um, what were some of the ways that you discovered that women were using to sort of combat the fact that they weren't being played on country radio? Yeah, I mean, I always, I always love how from the get-go, Casey Musgraves made it very clear that she was interested um, in speaking to a very specific group of people. 
And she said, you know, I don't care if I, I'd rather have, you know, 25,000 dedicated fans than 2 million dedicated fans, as long as I did it my way and said what I, you know, saying what I wanted to sing and said what I wanted to say. Um, so she found other ways and other means and Marin and Mickey both did that too. When, you know, there's, there's so many country fans out there that don't know they love country music or that grew up with country music and then felt that they weren't represented. And so they drifted away or that it wasn't inclusive for a place like that. Um, and I think Casey, like very early in her career in you know, 2013 on her first record, she made sure to do interviews with queer publications and spoke very openly about her views and how important she felt it was to be an ally. Um, and she was turning down other, you know, more country focused places, the places that you're sort of supposed to do. Um, so she was very intentional about that, you know, bringing in the queer community, um, letting them know that she was an ally, uh, speaking to publications that were sort of outside of the Nashville fray, I guess. Um, and that's a really, that's a really good way for a country artist to kind of expand their walls. And people will get really angry at women, you know, like Maren Morris for doing a song like The Middle, um, which is a pop song through and through. She never said it was a country song. He never said it was a country song. It's a pop song. Um, but people got really angry with, with, with her for doing that. Like she, you know, was being a traitor or something. But if you can't be as successful as you want to be in country music, of course, you're going to seek out other ways and look outside of the genre and maybe make albums that are pop, um, like Casey Musgraves did. Um, you're not going to color and, you know, you're not going to color inside the lines. You're not going to play inside of the box that you've been trapped into. Um, because you're never going to succeed anyway on their terms. You know, even if you played the game, you still probably won't win because <laughs> it's only one woman at a time. So why bother? Yeah, at Diddy TV, we really believe that it's about the artist and their journey. So they may start off playing folk music and end up being a pop artist. But if you follow them through that entire career, um, you're really along their journey and their path as opposed to trying to dictate what an artist needs to be. Artists are artists, they're creators. Um, I don't think that the rest of us need to be dictating what mm -hmm. it is they actually are creating. Um, you mentioned the LGBTQ artists as well, and obviously there's also minorities, um, um, African-American women or men that wanna be in country music. Do you think that these women are paving the way for even more diversity in country music by taking that alternative path and maybe creating something that demonstrates a way forward for some of these other types of artists to be a country music artist? I do. I mean, and something that was really significant that Casey did was when she wrote Follow Your Arrow and she wrote Follow Your Arrow with two openly queer artists. And when she won awards for it, especially country awards, she was very intentional to bring Shane McAnally and Brandy Clark up on stage with her. So, you know, 
not just writing with and supporting queer artists, but, you know, platforming them and um, making sure that they're visible too. Cause it can't just be allies, you know, that are able to succeed. Um, I think only up until this point, it's really only been allies, but that's a huge part of what Mickey Guyton does is that every moment she gets in the door, she brings another black woman with her for almost everything she's done where she can. I mean, it's really remarkable. I think um, she goes on the CMAs or at least track of all the awards shows and who does what at which, but you know, bringing other artists along with her and, and giving them the platform, handing over the mic anytime she can um, is the way that we're going to get there, I think. So what would you like people to take away from the book, just from a, from the essence perspective? Um, that's a big question, but I think I'd like them to take away that, you know, if they've fallen out of love with country music or felt like they didn't belong or see themselves in it, that that's not true. And that there are people making music for them and about them, that if they're an artist, they belong there. Um, that the genre is much bigger and more beautiful than country radio, whatever let you believe. Um, and I do want it to be hopeful at the end of the day. There's a lot to be, uh, feel pretty hopeless about, but I do think these success stories should um, leave people with a bit of hope or even hopeful in the sense that they want to see what more they can do to change things or bring more people through the door with them. Well, here's hoping that her country opens people's eyes to some of the discrimination that these artists have been experiencing. And hopefully that leads to some change in the industry. Um, I'll be very interested to see the impact that your book makes once it's released. Um, Marissa, it was a pleasure talking to you about this book, this very exciting book. Wish you the best and uh, come visit us in Memphis. Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks for having me. That's a wrap for this edition of Insights. Huge thanks to award-winning music journalist Marissa R. Moss for joining us on the show this hour to discuss her brand new, critically acclaimed book, Her Country. Musicians like Brandi Carlisle, Leanne Rimes, and Orville Peck are raving about the book, with Peck proclaiming, Country music has always been creative, full of strong folks, and is way more diverse than the often portrayed stereotype. Marissa R. Moss's Her Country is an excellent highlight of the incredible women who have paved the way for this genre, as well as the women currently pushing it forward. We highly recommend you get your copy today at marissarmoss.com. From all of us at Diddy TV, thanks again for tuning in today, and we hope to see you again real soon, right here on Insights. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 